1: Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Professor Ellie van Kelderen of Arizona State University about her book The Linguistic Cycle, Language Change, and the Language Faculty. The book is a catalogue of examples of linguistic history repeating itself, but also an attempt to understand the processes that we see within a minimalist syntactic framework, where economy on the part of the language acquirer is crucial for language change. In this interview, among other things, we discuss the notion of the linguistic cycle the relationship between historical linguistics and syntactic theory the polysynthetic languages of the Americas and whether old english can be classified as polysynthetic i'm talking to professor ellie van kelderen about her book the linguistic cycle language change and the language faculty ellie um there's been plenty of change in your own career could you tell us a bit about it where you started and where you are at the moment
0: mhm so i depends on where you think a career starts and um, let's say I start let's arbitrarily started somewhere with my um, bachelors and that was in Utrecht and I think I ended up in an English department because I was really interested in literature and it happened to be English but it could have been German or Dutch or something else but it fortunate in some sense fortunate for me and Um, it was in English and at that time there were, it was a phonetics heavy department in Utrecht, but there was a lot of stuff happening. And, um, I remember in my first year taking a class in the history of English and I just was transformed by that and ended up really enjoying historical linguistics from then on. And it was fortunate that in my third year, fourth year, I think, David Lightfoot joined the department, so that just gave a lot of extra um, impetus to historical linguistics, but people like Andy Baxter and other people were also very influential. Then after that, I ended up going to McGill, and there was really no historical linguistics there, and so I did mainly syntax. And McGill had a slightly unfortunate history in its personnel and so I saw people, uh, three syntacticians, not get, two not get tenure and then one stayed. So it was a bit of a rocky start there but I learned a lot about syntax at McGill. So that's sort of my early start and then what else would you like me to focus on a bit? So,
1: um, now you're at at Arizona, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, from, from getting interested in, in historical linguistics at Utrecht, since then you've, you've written a book on the history of English, um, among other things, a textbook. How did that, that later stage of your, of your career develop?
0: So in 93, I wrote a book on the rise of functional categories, basically looking at how languages differ into the inventory of functional categories that they have and functional categories are things like complementizers and auxiliaries and demonstratives and that fascinated me because ultimately that concerns the typology of all languages so any language in the world needs to be classified and I'm fascinated by how Native American languages for instance have such a morphology heavy structure. So, basically, they're a stem, they're a verb, and then they have prefixes or suffixes. And English is not that way. And so, that's one of my, um, I think, the thing that keeps me going in terms of what is my, what is the big picture. And then, of course, the other picture is, the other question is, how do children perpetuate a particular language? Type and how do they actively change it. And that's another area that I'm really interested in. So from the book in '93 on functional categories, I also became interested in agreement, how verbs agree with their subjects. Then after that, I looked a little bit at pronouns, a lot more in the 2000 book. And then after that, I wrote a book on grammaticalization and economy. And I grammaticalization is a process where uh, full verbs, such as want, for instance, end up being used as future markers or intention markers. And so I worked a lot on grammaticalization and tried to um, come up with an account for that in terms of the Chomskyian approach, uh, sort of um, modern syntactic approach. And the way I looked at it is that grammaticalization, I think, is unidirectional. It's always going in one direction. There are a few counterexamples to this, like to up, where a, a preposition ends up being used as a verb. But there are not so many. So I then started thinking about that in terms of a child learning a language and economizing Thinking, oh, I already have a preposition. I might as well use that as a complementizer as well. And that's what happened in the history of English with, with, with four in the preposition four. Originally, it was a spatial preposition in front of me. And then, of course, probably French pushed that out by now, now we use in front of. Then four is also used as four, or five minutes for, for a little bit of time. So temporal. Then it ended up as a benefit for you, and um, now we're using it as a complementizer. I want very much for you to do that, especially in American English, that for. In British, the purpose one. In British English, you use it as a cause marker. I left for the arrived or something like that.
1: Okay, so grammaticalization is something that feeds in very crucially to your account of the linguistic cycle mm-hmm. in this book, could you say a little bit about what the linguistic cycle is and how this particular book came about?
0: Okay, so grammaticalization is one part of a, a change that is going in a in one direction, but it's basically economy. So it means that a full verb will lose some semantic features and ends up being used in a grammatical way, but ultimately that verb may disappear. And that means we also need renewal. And that was the old insight of von der Gabelens in 1901 and uh, Jespersen and various other people, that there's a balance between ease of articulation and grammaticalization and what is sometimes called the comfort principle and a need for renewal of the um, bleached elements, and that then is the cycle. So I can give a little bit more, uh, an example, the example that's often given, of the negative cycle, where in Old English we have a negative by itself, a ne, or a no, or a na, and then at some point the verb gets together with this ne and ends up for instance, not is would be miss, and not was would be nas. And because the ne is perhaps not so prominent anymore, native speakers end up using another negative in that sentence. So they would say not is, miss, and then they would say nothing thing, no thing. And then at some point, the, the no thing ends up being shortened to not, and ends up, becoming the primary um negator. And at that point, the n can fall off the verb, and that's what happens. Now, of course, the next step in that cycle would be another, would be the not ending up as n, which it has. I can't, I don't. You often don't hear whether someone is saying do not or, or do. So the normal thing would be, for it to be renewed, as it, as it is in non-standard varieties, I don't see nothing. But prescriptively, that's not possible. And now you often hear people use never instead of not. So that's a little bit of the cycle. That's one example of the cycle.
1: Uh, you alluded earlier on to the fact that you're using a Chomskyan approach, specifically a, a minimalist approach. And to to people who aren't familiar with this type of approach, that may seem a bit surprising because... One of the preconceptions people have about minimalism, isn't it all just about what's universal, about similarities between languages? Does it have anything to say? Does it have things to say about the history of languages, about diversity in languages?
0: Mm -hmm. I think it obviously does. I think, so there are a number in early minimalism, we're still really focusing on trees, we're focusing on movement. And you can think of economy, so a way of, a, a child has to interpret the language it hears around, the, it's um, her or him, I'll just refer to a child as she or he, but, so a child needs to interpret what it hears, and then what happens is that it may say, this is too complicated for me, or... I see a a full phrase, but I can make that into a smaller uh, part, and that is a head. So in early minimalism, you can formulate uh, an economy principle in terms of structure in the tree. And so, for instance, if you want to say the nice person, instead of doing that, you could make it into a, a pronoun, and that's economizing. One of the other... In later minimalism, to some extent, features become a lot more important. And then the question is, and that's occupied me the last couple of years, what are the universal features? Chomsky, in some of his early works, talks about a universal set of atoms. And with features, I mean things like how does the child know there is such a thing as negation? Negation is not something you get out of the, the data tell you. Um, how does the child know there is something like a conditional? If I do this, then that. So at the moment, and Chomsky doesn't talk very much about this, but it is implicit in all of his work, is that we are born with a set of these features and we just fill in. Once we have features like concrete, abstract, when we, we have these features and we then can learn words, because children learn about 10 words a day and that has to, that can't just be from experience. So it's, the Chomskyian framework is very much a rationalist and, um, non-empiricist, um, framework. And so that then helps you explain what's often called Plato's problem. How do we know so much given that we have so little data available to us?
1: So something else that's something that's very central to your account of the linguistic cycle is a particular implementation of minimalist theory about features, specifically the idea of feature economy. Um, Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about feature economy?
0: Yes. So, for instance, let's think of the uh, verb will, which in Old English had a different meaning. It was much more of a volitional meaning. I really want to go. So, originally, a verb like will can have a semantic feature like volition, intention, perhaps pre-arrangement, but also future. It's something that will happen in the future. And as will changes, so a child will an old English child had those features connected to will. Then that child also started using it perhaps just as volition, as in I want to go or just as in future. And so saw that it could just use it in a grammatical way. And so originally the the word Will be in the lexicon with a lot of features, but the child can use it in a different combination. And then at some point that will be taken over. And, um, so yes, I've been working a lot on in minimalism. There are two types of features, two types, actually many types. There's phonological features, but we won't talk about that very much. There are the semantic features. And I think those are the innate features. And perhaps they're even pre-human. And then there are grammatical features, and they come in two types, interpretable and uninterpretable. And um, there's been a lot of uh, theorizing about these, and the interpretable ones are the ones that actually have meaning. The uninterpretable ones are just grammatical, um, and they're, they're fluff to some extent. They aren't necessary, and they might just be there because of historical accident. And to give an example of uninterpretable and interpretable features, let's say in a sentence you have a bunch of negatives, but they all mean one negation. So if I said in English, I don't see nothing, and I meant by that, I don't see anything, then I would only have one interpretable negative feature in that sentence. The other ones would just be agreeing features, and those are the uninterpretable ones. And the same is true with, um, so another cycle I've worked on is the subject to agreement cycle. So in many languages, subject pronouns end up being agreement markers, inflection, on in the verb. And the way that you can think about that is that languages in one sentence need to know who is doing what to whom. So you need at least one set of interpretable features telling you, who is the actor or who is the subject? Those are two slightly different things, but I'll equate them here. So we need to know who is arriving, for instance, and that those will be interpretable features. They could be on the verb or on the, on the pronoun. If they're on the pronoun, that's perfectly fine. Then they can be repeated on the verb as well as uninterpretable features. In some languages where you don't need pronouns, it is possible that the interpretable features are sitting on the verb. I don't know if that helped a little bit with interpretable and uninterpretable.
1: Yeah, so the key change, the unidirectional part of the cycle here, is the change from semantic to interpretable to uninterpretable, essentially. Right. Right.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes.
1: Mm. And on a slightly different note... One thing that one notices when looking at the minimalist syntactic literature is that monographs are often written on very specific, narrow topics, on a particular focus construction, in a particular language, for instance. And on reading this book, one immediately notices that it couldn't be more different. There are 40 pages of of references, um, nearly 300 different language varieties in the index and language families... Um, and over a thousand example sentences. And I just wondered how it played out for you, having to reconcile the great empirical coverage with the kind of detailed coverage that's normal uh, in a minimalist syntactic analysis. Um, how did you find that there was a tension there?
0: Well, the main tension is you can't look at everything. And it's, for instance, some of the pages on Zapotec, they took me weeks and weeks before I understood st- the data. And, you know, because that's not my area. And that's true with a number of these areas. So it is, um, yes, it, it is hard, but my main emphasis is trying to find examples of the cycle and also of these features and, therefore it is nice to have as broad a coverage as one can. And I'm not a typologist, so I don't know 300 languages well, and they're not well balanced. The languages that are represented in the book are some of the ones I have some knowledge about, and that's a limitation to some extent. Earlier you asked about my career, and when I came to Arizona in 1995, one of the things I really wanted to do was learn Navajo. And I spent quite some time at that, but it's not a language I will ever be able to um, learn, I think. And um, one of the fascinations with what are called polysynthetic languages is that they don't really have a good analysis within minimalism. And it's because they are so focused on heads. And in minimalism, and that goes back to what used to be called X-bar theory, you have a balance between phrases and heads. So a phrase would be um, the nice computer and a head would be an auxiliary. And so you, you balance that. And that's also important currently in Chomsky's, um, the, the problem of projection. He has a, and he says you can't put two Phrases next to each other, and that's how you end up with that. Now, Native American languages are, in my opinion, organized differently, and that's one of the things I really want to figure out, and that's um, why perhaps they're represented in the book as well. So it isn't just easy languages, but those, I think, are a real challenge for current minimalism. Someone like Ken Hill did have um, an analysis, of a tree structure of Navajo in the Squibb and linguistic inquiry. But if you look at it, the order of the morphemes is problematic and so on. So that was a bit of a digression, but yes. And I love looking at languages. I teach a, a typology class here, and even though I'm not a typologist, I just it's wonderful to puzzle what what the aspect is. Is it aspect, is it tense? Is there a mood involved? And so on.
1: In that respect, um this work reminds me a bit of the sort of meso comparative as opposed to macro or micro comparative work. The sort of work that's been done recently by people like Baker and also Longabardi. Um yes. in in the generative framework.
0: Yes and I also talk maybe not so much in this book, about the different types of cycles. So, um, Bernd Heine, for instance, has recognized there are three types of cycles. And one is the really micro-cycle, that I now call micro-cycle, he didn't. Um, where you're just looking at one word that changes. For instance, will becoming a future marker. Or want, currently becoming a future marker. I've seen work that says you can, there are some people who can say it wanted to rain meaning mm. it, it is going to rain so there, those are pretty standard and they are smaller cycles then people look at the entire future system for instance once will changes or once want changes what happens to all of the tense and mood and aspect the whole system and then there are people who look at entire languages how they go from isolating, and that means each word is its own has its own meaning, and there are no a- endings to agglutinative language like Turkish, where you can still see the original words that were are now glued together to inflectional where you can't see the boundaries between what used to be a word and so people like Heine feel that you can't really. Think about macro cycles, that that's, we don't have the knowledge about that, and so on. So yes, in terms of comparative, these MESO and micro and macro, it's very interesting work. Because one of the criticisms of the parameters approach was that we end up with too many parameters. If, if languages have to be um, differentiated in terms of Italian has a pro-drop parameter, English does not... We end up with so many choices. And if you can, um, in a way, put parameters in terms of, okay, I make a macro choice between polysynthetic or non, and then once I'm polysynthetic, I can make a choice between non-incorporation or not. So then that reduces the number of parameters. It presents a challenge because we then have to sort out what depends on what so yes.
1: And then the task becomes to construct the sort of hierarchy that was proposed yes. originally by Baker um, in Atoms of Language, but more recently has been advocated by people like Longobardi, Roberts Holmberg, uh and also in chapter nine, I think it is, of your book.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. but I think there is a challenge, so um, during... Uh, Wickville, we were talking about that earlier in the West Coast Conference on Formal Linguistics. If you think about alignment types, whether languages are ergative or not, there are just so many possibilities in terms of whether person is relevant, um, whether it's past tense or not. And I didn't see those in some of the alignment hierarchies. They're just, it's such a challenge to get everything in. So yeah. That that is that will be one of our challenges. The, the hierarchy I had was just in terms of case and agreement, and so I was saying, okay, does a language have case or not? Does it have agreement or not? And that then gives you a, uh, a set for the features. So I was mainly concerned about the features. So that helps me with thinking about that. Now, for most minimalists, all languages have agreement and case features. And I disagree with that. I think there are languages where case is not at all relevant, and among those would be, for instance, where I don't think case is at all relevant, because all the noun phrases are outside of the sentence we they in, more like topics, and they're not integrated in the sentence. But that's my feeling. That's... Um, Work by Eloise Jelinek, who in the 1980s came up with a macro parameter, in a sense that said our language is pronominal argument or not, and what that meant was that you had an affix on the verb, and did that count as an argument? So, as a real what in English would be a noun phrase outside of the verb.
1: One thing that that keeps cropping up, both in the book and in your discussion. Uh, that I think is actually quite rare in historical syntax, is discussion of these native languages of the Americas. Um, it really seems to be a, a unique selling point of, of what you're doing here. They're not usually used by diachronists, as I say, and, and do you think that there's, there's scope for more work here?
0: Oh, definitely. One of the... I think... I started looking at negation in the Athabascan languages. There are about 40 Athabascan languages there, um, Greenberg thought about the languages of the Americas as having come in three waves across the Bering Seas, and certainly, and that's controversial, but uh, most people are quite happy with having Athabascan or Nadene as one language group. They're one of the groups that came somewhat later from the first wave. And when I started looking at those 40 languages, I started noticing a real difference in the negation. So some of the language... So the older, the archaic languages are based more in Alaska. But as this language family began to branch out both to the east into Canada and then to the southwest, to Navajo and Apache, as well as to the Pacific coast, they seemed to all change their negation in somewhat predictable ways. And You could also then start to look at what is an older form. And you really started to see that, for instance, there was an older L-type auxiliary that, that had been the negative auxiliary. And so that was still around in many of the languages and had been incorporated into the verb stem in some. Now, Navajo being one of the ones that had branched out maybe the furthest in the southwest, Ended up not using that L, um, at all, but ended up with a do and a da, and, um, that also have interesting, um, reflexes, cognates in the other languages. So I think starting, looking at a family like that, that doesn't have, where we don't know much about the diachrony, really makes it, makes you think, oh yes, we can, we can do diachrony. In, with languages, as long as you have a lot of dialects that have quite a bit of time depth from when they split up.
1: So it becomes a task of trying to figure out which are the more archaic variants and which are the more recent ones, a bit like looking at the rings in the trunk of a tree or something. Yes,
0: yes. And I, I think you can, they, when you have 40 or so to compare, and I was only looking at negation, and these languages are actually quite stable in, in many of the other areas. Um, and some speakers from, for instance, Canada can know the words for fish and water and so on. They're the same as the ones in, in Navajo. But their verb stems and the prefixes have remained remarkably stable. And that is perhaps one of the challenges for uh, cyclical, for the cycle. Why is it that some languages and some constructions, negatives are fast. Negatives are somehow, it's important for us to to make our point, whether it's yes or no, and therefore negatives um, change a lot. But there are some languages where things just remain stable. And Chinese, for instance, in Chinese, the negatives have changed a lot. But for instance... There is very little that change in terms of the verb. There are no inflections very much that seem to be occurring. Perhaps at the moment there is a little bit about an aspect, morphine, that seems to be weakening. But, you know, it's a challenge why some languages move faster than others. And, of course, people have argued that there is pressure from other languages and that that accelerates grammaticalization. So that is a possibility.
1: Jumping briefly back across the Atlantic, uh-huh. but still on a related note, perhaps some of your expertise in the American native languages influences your analysis of Old English, in a sense, which you propose in Chapter 2 is at least partially polysynthetic, yes. um, which might surprise some more traditionally-minded scholars. Could you say a bit about that?
0: Mm-hmm. So Old English was remarkably... One of the characteristics of polysynthetic languages is that you don't have very much embedding. So you don't say, I noticed that he left um, before she arrived, or something like that. And so these languages, these sentences that aren't very embedded, so in Old English you have, then he went, then he did this, and then he did this. That's one of the characteristics. Another characteristic, and this is something you've worked on as well, that you could leave the pronoun unexpressed. Now, by the time of Old English, that is only, I think, some of your estimates are 20%, where it could be unexpressed. But certainly, that could mean that some of the inflection on the verb was actually interpretable, and the inflection on the verb is what made... People interpreted as first or second person um, mm-hmm. pronoun. And yeah, there are a couple of, their quantifiers are missing. And that's another, um, typical, um, trait of polysynthetic languages. Reflexives weren't there, but that's a little bit harder to, because they probably were there in older versions. And yeah, so I've, there was also a lot more expressed on the verb. And causatives and transitive visors, that all happened on the verb. So there was a lot more activity on the verb. And in that sense, they're more, they're similar to polysynthetic languages. If I really had to, um, if it was a big bet, I wouldn't know how to decide whether it's, um, polysynthetic or not. I, in my book, I give a few arguments and sort of to make people think about this perhaps and to think about what makes language polysynthetic or not and that's really hard to know
1: Mm. another theme here of the book really is that some of these big picture terms that seem very intuitively useful like synthetic analytic polysynthetic kind of break down when you expose them to when you compare different areas of the grammar, perhaps. Yes. Um, So a point that I liked uh, was that you kind of relativise the synthetic analytic distinction to an extent to phenomena like tense mood and aspects or Mm. negation.
0: Yes, and that again has to do with the micro and the macro and maybe the meso cycles. Most people seem to be comfortable thinking about these changes at the level of the tense and so on, but not at the level of entire languages. The problem of what counts as synthetic or what counts as an analytic language has been a problem for a long time. Sapir thought about it, and, um, you know, if a word has three morphemes, is that polysynthetic or not? Um, so, yeah, I think we still don't have a really good answer to that
1: tense and aspects in your book are connected fairly closely with case could you explain that connection there
0: mhm it's really interesting and actually so let's think about aspect so aspect tells you whether an action is finished or not so and in english we don't have a very good perfective but aspect that can also be expressed by means of a definite article. So if I say I ate the apple, the apple is um, gone. If I say I was eating an apple, or even more, I was eating of an apple, you're just eating a small part. So perfective has to do with whether the full apple was eaten, whether the, the verb was finished, so to speak. And you can do that by means of a perfective prefix as in Russian, you can do it as in modern English by means of a definite article and an de- indefinite article. So what I found, and this is what other people have found also, is that once we lost the prefix in English that showed perfectivity, and that was the G prefix, we got an increase almost immediately. We, our, our demonstratives ended up becoming very frequent, so that and this and so on, and then they also grammaticalize to articles the and later on the, uh. so as you lost the marking on the verb for perfectivity you gained demonstratives, at the same time you also lost the genitive on the noun so you could say um, um, I ate and then the apple and the apple would have, or apple would have genitive. And that would mean that it wasn't totally eaten. So it's really interesting to see how, um, perfectivity can be expressed both in terms of case, in terms of aspect on verb, but also as definite articles. And the work by Elizabeth Leiss has been very influential in terms of uh, connecting aspect and case. So, yeah, so there are a number of these really interesting changes happening in English around 1200. One of the the other things I found is that as these changes were happening, you suddenly get the quantifier all a lot more. So all the so-and-so. So So I think that was to um, to emphasize that the perfectivity, that it was really finished.
1: So it's no longer playing a pure quantifier role.
0: well, not in those texts. it was more indicating um, that it was finished actually a, a student of mine in Arabic found out too that there was in order to indicate perfective aspect you were using a quantifier. so I think there are number that's the interesting thing again about the cycle what happens if you lose perfective aspect if the good prefix is lost, there there will be a compensation in the system. Now, and another puzzle is that sometimes there is no compensation in the system. So, yeah, interesting questions that arise with that.
1: Mm. Most of your work is talking about the transition from semantic to syntactic in feature terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so from semantic to interpretable to uninterpretable specifically. But one area where you don't find that, or where you don't state that you find it, is with the adverbs. Yes,
0: I I figured you were going to ask that. Yes, adverbs are very problematic, and currently I'm looking at the same thing in with the adjectives. I have a student that's working on how adjectives move up the tree, so to speak, So, for instance, an adjective like wooden originally just means a wooden desk or even a wooden nickel. They're wooden. And, but nowadays they are, it's used as that is a wooden characterization or that was a wooden, um, performance or something like that. But it's, so again, that those sorts of changes are really hard to characterize in terms of features. And the same is true with With adverbs, something like clearly originally was something is done in a clear manner and hopefully was originally I'm doing it in a hopeful manner. And now if I say, hopefully this will happen, it's much more epistemic. I am, I am expecting something or, and I don't, you, it's really hard to do that in terms of features, and I haven't really found a way to do that. Sometimes I feel that there are also huge jumps. These are jumps from an adverb that's sitting, that is modifying a verb, to an adverb that's modifying a whole sentence. And it may be that it was the wrong way of looking at those changes in terms of grammaticalization. Maybe these are lexicalizations and the adverb at the end of the sentence is connected more with the next sentence. So there's a jump from the one sentence to the other. I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm more doubtful about that analysis. So you, you're absolutely right.
1: And that touches on another issue that's raised, um, within the book. Uh, at one point you discussed two competing analyses of Phenomenal argument languages, um, mm-hmm. Baker's analysis and Jelinek's analysis. And you end up concluding, if this is a fair characterization, that, that you adopt Jelinek's analysis because actually it makes, it seems to fit better diachronically. Yes. Um, this, this use of, um, of essentially diachronic argumentation to decide between two competing synchronic analyses is quite interesting. Do you think there's scope for more of that in minimalism?
0: Mm -hmm. So in in the case of the pronominal argument languages, Baker, if I remember correctly, uses a pro and Jelinek does not. And it's just in terms of the increase in polysynthesis, which has happened in Navajo, for instance. It's that languages has objects um, obligatorily marked on the verb as well, whereas other languages do not. And we know that's a change. So it was... It, it made more sense. If one had certain economy principles it was easier to describe it in terms of genomics system. So so yes, some of the changes give us insight into the analysis as well. So diachrony can help our our theories and our frameworks. And that often has been a problem and this is something I've talked about before, some in in papers, that the generative enterprise, even though there were people like Klima and and, uh, Kiparski and King, quite early on, these people were interested in generative historical linguistics. Chomsky has never really been very interested in historical linguistics, partly because of his emphasis on... um, the native speaker and native speaker judgments. Mm. So I I do think historical change can really help um sim- uh, our frameworks. And part of that is if change is always in a particular direction, showing particular characteristics, this means that the child is reorganizing things in a particular way. And that's what we're interested in. What is the faculty of language? What does a child and what do we have in our heads? And so, yes, I think it's crucial to look at linguistic change.
1: One possible difficulty with working with the minimalist program as a, a framework for doing diachronic analyses um, might be that it's a bit of a moving target. So, for instance, you propose two specific principles as part of feature economy, the the late merge principle and the head preference principle. Uh, And as for the late merge principle, that's something that in recent work Chomsky has been arguing may not follow. And as for the head preference principle, which says be a head rather than a phrase, um, be a head rather than a specifier, essentially, that might cause issues when with the people who are now arguing that specifiers don't exist. Mm-hmm. So I was just wondering what your experience is with that. Do you find it frustrating? Do you enjoy the challenge?
0: Well, I, I've i been around a long time to see that certain things aren't going to go away. Like there is There are many languages where when the subject comes before the verb, the agreement is very different, Arabic for instance, than when the verb comes before the subject and this is this receives a perfect account in a spec head versus a a probe analysis and um, okay so now suddenly we don't have specifiers anymore we don't have spec head agreement anymore so then the data aren't going to go away so um, you still have to find a solution for those differences and so yes sometimes it's It's frustrating, but I also know that most of the time where I was really resistant to a particular thing, later on I came to appreciate why it is this way. And for instance, Keynes' linear correspondence axiom, a lot of people were initially very reluctant about. And um, now we're, by accepting it, but also criticizing it then and saying, why can't it the, um, why does the tree always have to go one direction? Why couldn't it go in the other direction? And nowadays people are thinking about that and it has um, made us think about precedence in a different way and sort of proceeding versus following. And so I think it's good to, to rethink a particular problem. Now, in the case of the late merge principle and the the late merge principle basically says if you're moving around too much, that's costly. I think um, even though Chomsky says, well, it's not that costly, we still need to think about some of these issues, that there is a difference between what is now called internal and external merge. So I still think we need to pay attention to that.
1: So whatever the theory is doing, there are still generalizations there that need to be captured.
0: Yeah, that's a very good way of saying it. Great. Okay.
1: You mentioned Kane there towards the end. Word order change is something that gets touched on towards the very end of the book. Mm -hmm. And, um, your conclusions there aren't very, aren't very positive ultimately.
0: No, I think it's really hard to figure out why changes happen. So, SLV to SVO is the one we're probably the most, um, familiar with. And we, That's the change between Latin and um, the more modern Romance languages. And also the change between Old English and Modern English. But, so what are some of the other changes that can happen? There aren't that many. The ones in, in the book on page 363, I see SVO going to SOV, but that's not as frequent. VSO to SVO... That's because you stop, the verb stops moving. What frustrates me maybe in this is that there are changes you would expect to see happen. For instance, from VSO to SVO. Because that's, uh, a VSO language is one where the verb moves in front of the S. And so you would expect the verb to stop moving and that sort of thing. I, when I looked at this and I looked at it, probably several months, and it was also hard to find the data. You would think there's a lot on changes in uh, word order, but it, it was hard to find that.
1: So some people have argued, um, have made quite strong claims on the basis of word order change. For instance, a recent paper by Gelman and Rulin saying that, um, well, proto-worlds was probably OV because generally, OV changes to VO. Do you think that's over-optimistic, given the current state of our knowledge?
0: You would also need to know um, a number of other things. So, OV to VO, usually, in the changes we know, it usually happens more with certain definite objects, and not, for instance, with negative indefinites. They stay OV, the longest, so you would need... To know. And I don't know that paper, actually. I should take a look at that. But So you expect certain things. You, you expect a rationale. And it won't change, of course, from one day to the next. So the stages in between will give you insight as to whether that is, in fact, the right analysis or not.
1: So, again, it's important to look at the details as well as the very mm-hmm. broad-brush picture. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're running short on time. Uh, So my final question to you is, now that this book is on the shelves, though it's now been on the shelves for a year and then some, but now that it's out there on the shelves, um, what are you working on at the moment and what are your future research plans?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm still fascinated by Cycles, so I'm still finding new examples. At the moment, I'm looking at the duel and what happened to the duel and so on and whether I can see that as a cycle. I'm also doing the proofs for a syntax textbook that's coming out with Cambridge um, in July, so that will be nice to have that out. And that's a book that looks at the three layers of a clause, so it looks at the CP, the TP, and the VP layer, and both in a cartographic and in a minimalist approach, sort of what are the tensions between these two, um, frameworks or ways of looking at it. But then I think my major project, possibly a book project, is looking at argument structure and looking at how a verb has a more special relationship with its theme than with all the other arguments. And So a theme would be, I eat an apple, the apple is um, the theme and the I is the agent. And um so the reason for... And there's been a lot of debate recently whether verbs are in the lexicon with all their arguments specified. So give would have an, uh, an agent, a theme, and a, a recipient. Whether they are all in the lexicon that way or whether a verb is just a root and you just add arguments as you want. And um, my feeling on that is that it's more in between, so that the verb is in the lexicon with its theme, but that the other ones can be added. And my reason for looking at, for arguing that, is again, Native American languages that have suppletive stems for what kind of thing you eat, for instance, or what kind of things you handle. There are about nine different stems. And children start, and this is work by a, PhD student of mine who looked at that for Spanish, John Ryan, and he found that children start, even in one word, um, utterances, they say things like up and fall. And so the theme seems to be pretty basic. And I've also looked at that in terms of linguistic change, how themes change, um, and they seem to like to be close to the verb. If a theme is higher up, as in the case of object experiencers like this surprises me, there's often a reanalysis, a reshuffle of the theme. So that's one of my my an interest that has just started to gel a little bit. So the theme and how it has a different relationship to the verb than the other arguments.
1: Great. Well I look forward to the results of that one coming out. Uh, And in the meantime, I will just say thank you very much for your time today.
0: And thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: I've been talking to Ellie van Felderen about her book, The Linguistic Cycle. This is George Walkden for New Books in Language, saying thank you for listening.